I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. The Diving Deep EDU podcast aims to have thought-provoking conversations that help listeners dive deeper into educational practices especially regarding teacher retention, recruitment, and burnout. Subscribe to the Diving Deep EDU podcast newsletter to get more information about this podcast and these topics. Link is in the show notes. Our guest today is Nick Covington. Nick taught high school social studies for 10 years in Iowa. He's the co-founder of Human Restoration Project, a nonprofit educational organization committed to systemic change towards human-centered learning experiences. Nick, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. I want to start this conversation off by you telling us a little bit more about the work you're doing, especially around the Human Restoration Project. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, first and foremost, Matt. So now about the Human Restoration Project. We were founded in 2020 as a nonprofit. What a great year to found a nonprofit. (laughs) But um, uh, really, it it kind of just came out of um, this, this systemic, structural sense that you had alluded to in that introduction mm-hmm. that things just kind of weren't working. And the more that we, uh, the co-founder, Chris McNutt and I, um, he was a teacher in Ohio. Um, so we actually met uh, via the joy of Twitter and then oh. went into this business together. Um, it's kind of a wild story. I mean, we're really close friends today and obviously, you know, co-founders of the Human Restoration Project now. But um, if you just look back at the last two decades, right? The last 20 years of of top-down reform, um, they've had 20 years to show that those things have worked. And we think they've not only failed in that Mm. sole mission, which is primarily to raise standardized achievement scores, but we also see the impact it has on student engagement and curiosity, a mental health crisis that was already a problem before the pandemic and has Mm -hmm. since worsened. Um, Obviously, the, the attacks on teaching as a profession, the deep professionalization of teaching has kind of gone in lockstep along with those top-down reforms. And, um, you know, as society and schools like kind of not really post-pandemic, but we've attempted this return to normalcy that really was not all that great for a lot of people to begin with. So true. Thought like let's just try what approach haven't we tried yet? Let's try a grassroots, bottom up, coalition building approach that values teachers as professionals. They understand their context and their kids working in and with communities, you know, not only to restore humanity to the profession as a whole, but believing deeply in that power of schools, particularly in public schools, for the goal of making those schools and classrooms transformative spaces, right? To not only imagine what's possible within those spaces, but actually use them as ways to, you know, propagate change and restore humanity to society at large. Yeah. What important work, you know, that you're doing and that your organization's doing. Tell us a little bit about what that looks like. So as you work with institutions, with public schools um, Mm -hmm. and with other schooling uh, systems, what does that look like to to bring a human centered uh, learning experience to them? So we kind of think that while the while the usual structures of schooling put standards ahead of students, Mm -hmm. um, to restore humanity to education, we basically propose centering the mission of schools around what we've identified as the four values of progressive education. So okay. when we talk about progressive education, it's kind of this amorphous, um, <laughs> touchy-feely kind of thing yeah. that can mean a hundred different things depending on whether you're acting in good faith or bad. But we've just nailed it down to four concrete ideas that first, learning is rooted in purpose finding and community relevance. So that looks like um, mapping a path to purpose. That looks like creating interdisciplinary multi-age classroom spaces for you know kids and teachers to interact outside of content silos the second thing would be social justice as the cornerstone to educational success and um, of course that demands anti-racist inclusive spaces authenticating student voice and then utilizing restorative practices instead of you know traditional um, uh, behaviorist practices I suppose yeah. then 
the only negative one that we have on here, I guess, is that dehumanizing practices do not belong in school. So these would be things like working to um, eliminate or change uh, uh, grading policies, reducing homework, kind of moving away from an emphasis on standardized achievement as measures of school success. And then the last one there is that learners are respectful toward each other's innate human worth because mm. I think one of the other misnomers of progressive education is that it's just a thing that happens between you and your laptop or Khan Academy, right? Like self-directed yep. education, education as an individualistic endeavor. But we really want to put community collaboration um, at the center of that work. So rather than forcing competition, let's focus on cooperative, collaborative, constructive, you know, collective efforts. Um, let's go ahead and honor self-directed learning while, you know, connecting to a thriving public education. So there's there's no reason to, uh, you know, attack or tear down public education at the same time that we allow pathways for self-directed learning within those. So we think that that framework rooted in those four values really gives um, us and the schools that we work with, the the groups and universities and um, other organizations that mm -hmm. we collaborate with permission to think differently about those disciplinary silos, about discipline itself, about grades and grading, the role of community and collaboration, as I just mentioned, right, all of those things. And really, the failure to reimagine education is really the failure to reimagine our fundamental relationship to the future, right? We always say kids are our future, schools play this role in it. So mm -hmm. the fa our failure to reimagine kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So we ask rather than, rather than emphasizing college and career readiness, we really step back and ask, you know, what is it about the world that's actually worth preparing students for? Mm. And are we as adults dedicated to that work of building the better world alongside them? Right. Not just preparing them yeah. for a world that sucks, <laughs> um, that's not sustainable, that's not going to last. Um, mm -hmm. Like, how can we actually construct in this space together a model for what we want the future to look like? Um, now, to get to your question about what that work con in concrete terms looks like, <laughs> um, our theory of change is actually kind of simple. It's just inform, guide and grow. And so all of our resources are aligned to those four values that I just discussed. But kind of at different levels of entry. So um, to inform educators, students, parents, right, any kind of uh, what we would call the, the stakeholders in, mm -hmm. in our educational endeavors, mm -hmm. um, you know, we've got we've got a, a writing page that has I think I just had counted, um, you know, you could read an article every single day and make it half a year without uh, reading the same thing twice. We've just got an epic amount of writing on our page. We've got a podcast, um, you know, similar to yours that's headed into its 124th episode. Oh, nice. um, and we've got I, what I think is a one of a kind um, actual research database on our website. So the other thing that we believe about progressive education practice is that it is a research based practice. You know, mm. so often you hear in education that evidence based practices tend to fall under an umbrella that looks a lot more like traditional education, right? Traditional disciplinary practices, um, you know, traditional instructional models, traditional assessment, traditional, all these things. Um, but we believe that there's a huge body of work, um, of research, of literature to actually support the practices that we're talking about. So those are just things that people want to know more, they can do that. The kind of second tier then is the guide stage where we actually create um, open education resources things that you can take, you can remix, you can use um, to lead PD in your own contexts, right? Take our ungrading handbook and go to work with your PLC on it, right? Or use that to lead all building PD all by yourself. Um, those are resources that we have available for free on our website, for example. We've got uh, <laughs> over a dozen of those things. Oh, wow. And, and then we actually do... Um, uh, more, you know, directed PD, where we come in with our um, human-centered schools network model, um, where we actually do focus groups with students and run those focus groups through our partners at Cortico, um, which is uh, uh, out of MIT, and they take those focus groups and they run them through an AI transcription software, and it gives us this wonderful breakout of keywords, um, you know, who is speaking when, et cetera, this big searchable database of this transcript. And we essentially use that transcript in those conversations where we talk to kids about 
the things that I just mentioned there in our values. You know, what what do you think the purpose of education is? Um, where do you feel empowered in your school experience? Where do you feel disempowered or yeah. um, devalued? Um, you know, what's one thing that you would like to improve about your school experience? And then we take those focus group results and uh, we actually kind of run it through our own, um, <laughs> our own, what, like research kind of network and uh, kind of pull what what parts and bits and pieces we could actually go back and do PD with teachers about. So hmm. then we follow up with schools to say, hey, here's what we noticed. Here's a good starting point. Here's this other thing we noticed. Here's something to work on. And we actually do some directed PD around informing and um, uh, some activities to get teachers to be responsive to student voice in that context. Yeah. And that's kind of uh, that's kind of the, the biggest work that we do. Um, yeah. We also kind of run a uh, an annual conference, although this last year uh, in the summer of 2022 was our first one, the Conference to Restore Humanity, where we really want to lean into um, all online virtual um, learning and kind of create a model space for what that looks like. And in fact, of the 125 attendees that we had at our previous conference over the summer, I think about 72% or so said that they um, preferred that online virtual model compared to an in-person model, you know, oh. of similar. Why was uh, yeah. that? Um, well, we we really leaned into digital pedagogy. Um, I think the things that the things that we tried to do with uh, pandemic schooling, you know, not the yeah, not yeah, the yeah. crisis emergency learning that we were doing at the beginning where we we're all scrambling with our hair on fire. But um, really the stuff then that says, OK, how do we build a sustainable digital pedagogy that yeah. is accessible to, you know, students at home, um, uh, accessible to students who are coming in and out of the in-person school context, you know, for a lot of different reasons, be they um, due to illness or behavior or, um, kind of disruptions in their home life and all those kinds of things. So we flipped everything. We, we had, we had all flipped keynotes where our keynote speakers actually recorded their presentations beforehand. We released those to the conference goers. And then the actual session was a live Q and a with the keynote speaker, oh, nice. because that's the best part of any, you know, any conference keynote anyway, is not yep. listening to the content, but the Q and a that follows. So get, getting to spend an hour um, with Henry Giroux, with Denisha Jones. Um, we actually had uh, a restorative justice group from Harvest Collegiate High School in New York. Um, they created this wonderful keynote presentation. It was a, basically a documentary, hmm. but then we had students on the Zoom call, you know, oh, talking great. about the work that they were doing in schools. Yeah, hmm. it was so awesome. And all the tracks were fully virtual, um, you know, getting to run tracks on disrupting linguistic discrimination, hmm. um, disrupting carceral practices, um, combating childism in schools. Yeah, it was it was just an incredible um, week with an incredible group of educators and then kind that's of going cool. off into the world and propagating that too. So that's another way that we try to grow the movement, you know, is show people a model for what progressive practice mm. and pedagogy could look like and, you know, get people excited to bring that to their K-12 classrooms, to their higher ed classrooms, yeah. to adopt new tools, new techniques, new, yeah. you know, approaches to learning. So that's the long answer for it, Matt. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I love it. And uh, the work that you're doing is needed and it's different. And it's critical, right, to what's going on. A couple of things jumped out. One, I love what you're doing with the online schooling. Uh, you know, that's something I spend a lot of time doing and thinking about. And one thing I see the way that you're approaching it is through a progressive lens, but also through a thoughtful lens. Like you're mm -hmm. taking a step back and trying to rethink, okay, what's the most effective way that I can engage my conference attendees in, in a virtual setting? And that's why they liked it so much, you know, because there was so much thought and uh, direction and uh, purpose behind each thing. And, and I, yeah, so I'm sure they appreciated that. And that's, that's really interesting to see your work, you know, not just being your work, but your work showing through the way that you're doing things. So you're, you're making that virtual conference, a humane experience for the attendees. So, so well done with that. I have a question though, because you're thinking about this a lot and you know, this is your work, this is your organization. This is, you know, something that's been years in the making and now it's, uh, you know, it's, it's happening and, and mm -hmm. you guys are progressing. What do you think has caused uh, the learning experiences to become so inhumane? That's a really good question. <laughs> I think, I think there's a lot of so so our approach to things, I suppose, is is from a structural kind of systemic lens, yeah. because I think it's it's easy to 
um, blame individuals. Mm -hmm. I think it's easy to individualize systemic problems, right? Yep. So I think really what we have is a crisis of individuals responding to structural incentives and structures that dehumanize not just uh, students, but teachers alike, yeah. right? Because if you're forced to follow a practice that, you know, leads to the disruption of a relationship that you have with students, and then that disruption carries over into, you know, all other aspects of the instruction, right? That's a place that we would call like dehumanized. Mm -hmm. um, it's a dehumanizing experience to feel powerless, to feel like you have no control yeah. over or autonomy over your day. And again, that's a that's a structure and a system that affects students who feel that way and teachers who similarly mm -hmm. um, feel that. So I think, you know, the, the 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 system is responding to a set of incentives that says the ends justify the means. So it says if we're going to get these test scores up, then that necessitates controlling student bodies, student oh, minds in particular ways that are supposedly going to boost these assessment scores and you know whether they <laughs> whether they do or not I don't I don't really think that's the point because yeah. we would step back and say well, well the ends don't justify the means right um and one of the questions that I've really asked um even when I was in the classroom but then especially stepping out of it which is just like what if we built a better world and it didn't raise test scores hmm. right is is that possible we've tried the test score thing for so long <laughs> What if we tried the other part of it, right? What if we tried to actually, you know, it the, mm. the the data would say that kids are less engaged with school the longer they're in it. They ask fewer questions the longer mm. they're in school. Shouldn't that tra trajectory be the opposite? <laughs> like, mm. what would it look like for kids to be more engaged by the time they left? I mean, by the time they leave 12th grade and, and perhaps go on to higher ed or go into the rest of their life outside of school, they should be experts and yeah. asking questions about the world. They should be the most engaged that they are in mm -hmm. their school experience, right? Um, and so those are the kinds of questions that we step back and ask is just like, well, what if it just looked different? You know, um, what if we didn't have to respond to these kinds of things? And I, I think the reason why our organization has gotten so much momentum um, is because it works to do those things. I experienced yeah. that in my own practice, and that's what caused me to um, get involved in growing this organization is the more I found a language for progressive practice that kind of fit with the way I was experiencing my own classroom and I adopted those practices, my own classroom practice became happier. My classroom culture was was healthier. Mm -hmm. um, kids were doing more um, of the the action, the activity, and there, therefore the learning. Um, we were just working smooth together. I mean, my classroom was the smoothest running it had ever been by the time I had to step out. So mm. um, that I think is is kind of the, the, the tragedy of it, um, is that <laughs> this work eventually with Human Restoration Project eventually became um, kind of so big that it was impossible to do on nights and weekends and, and part time. So yeah. Yeah, and as you're talking, it's it's impossible to have them disconnected, right? Students and teachers. So a humanized experience for the the student is going to make it a humanized experience for the the teacher, and making it a humanized experience for the teacher will likewise make it a humanized experience for the for the student. As you were talking, another thing that jumped out, you know, that the ends justified the means, and I hear that so often in relationship to teachers. Like, well, mm. we just need them to work a little bit harder this year, and then they can ease up, right? Like we're going to tax them just a little bit more. We're going to squeeze a little bit more out of them. We're going to take a little bit more of their time and uh, because we need it. What are we going to do otherwise, right? We we need them to do that, to bump the test scores or whatever. What are some other ways you've seen uh, the teaching profession dehumanized? What you're saying right there, one thing that really clarified that to me is that in June, um, Gallup, you know, the, the polling mm -hmm. company, yeah. released this headline that, that I've just been um, ringing the bell for for the last six months, which the headline from Gallup was K-12 workers have highest burnout rate in the United States. Mm. So that's that's higher than even healthcare workers. That's higher than than lawyers. That's higher than entertainers, technology, right? Higher than everyone. And not only that, it's not only the highest that it that it's been and higher than any other group. The gap between teaching and the other and other professions is widening. So it's actually getting worse. Oh, wow. Um I, I think particularly with the pandemic, it became really clear just how much we were using schools as the right, the, the primary social safety net for kind of all of the problems that we failed to solve mm. 
um, through social policy in the rest of society kind of land at the schoolhouse door. And Mm. we expect teachers to pick up a lot of that stuff, whether it's economic disruptions due to um, recessions or pandemics that, you know, closed Mm -hmm. businesses um, and all those kinds of things. You know, we don't really have a very robust social safety net in the United States. Um, So if somebody loses their job, they lose their health care. And that can lead to, you know, challenges um, at home that, again, trickle down into uh, into the schoolhouse. Um, We also have, you know, um, a real uh, problem with economic mobility. And that that, again, is a problem that um, tends to concentrate inside communities just due to the way that um, the way that our economy works, the way that um, school funding works. And so you tend to get those concentrations of wealth and poverty, um, both in certain places. And you can kind of see the impact on schools there, too. Um, Yeah. Drugs, violence, Mm -hmm. school shootings. Uh, I, th- I think, right, um, we, we can't expect teachers to pick up the slack for all of these things. So I, I think what HRP proposes is really kind of a, a dual revolution, I would say, of not just that inside the classroom stuff, but again, like humanizing the classroom experience. So that way, hey, if if students experience a democratic classroom where they get to make decisions about how they're going to move their bodies in physical space, how they're going to interact with other people, what the rules of engagement are going to be, what they'll be doing, how they're going to be doing it at any given moment, right? Within reason, right? It's yeah. not a free for all, for goodness sake. <laughs> but well, then how is that experience going to inform them when they go work at the Amazon warehouse? Mm-hmm. Right. Are they going to be willing to put up with the conditions that an Amazon worker is going to um, face where they're not going to have a lot of bargaining power? They're not going to have a lot of control and autonomy over their working conditions and how they spend their time and all those things. Right. Mm-hmm. So, right. We can prepare students for one world where we just accept that. Right. The conditions of the Amazon warehouse um, are a necessity and uh, they're they're a social good. They're an economic good. They provide all these benefits. Or we can say, hey, we want that workspace to look differently. So how can we begin to prepare kids for Mm -hmm. that world in the world of the classroom and get to make those democratic decisions, right? Like how can this is, this is Deborah Meyer, uh, you know, how can we expect kids to go through 12 years of education um, without experiencing what democracy looks like and expect them to go out into the world when they're 18 and Mm. suddenly get it and practice it and do that when their workplace doesn't look like that. The political system doesn't look like that. The economic system certainly isn't democratic. So um, Mm. that's where we, again, kind of, um, not use schools as places for you know experimentation, but really just to build a different model of how we can exist and learn and you know uh, uh, again exist together. Yeah, that that example was really helpful. That Amazon example because it brings it beyond the classroom, um, you know, outside those four walls. And as you were saying that, I couldn't help but think about you know the example with Apple. I believe it was China. You know what they did with their factory. Again, getting back to what you're kind of saying, like the ends justifying the means. Like like we need to sell these phones. People need these phones, so we are going to put these. We're basically going to imprison these people to work until we get the phones that we need to bring that about. So right, yeah. Well, I mean, let's 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 just compare that model to then. <laughs> The experience of schools, right? I know. Where we've got this mental health crisis. Yeah. Kids, you know, kids, uh, anxiety, depression mm. are amongst the highest diagnoses. Often those things are comorbid, right? Those have higher um, higher probabilities and likelihoods than for drug and alcohol addiction yep. later on. Yep. Um, you know, again, and then think of the social kind of crises that drug and alcohol addiction, you know, cause amongst families and in communities. And again, I think one of the largest causes of death for young people is also suicide. So you're more mm-hmm. likely to to take your own life and engage in self-harm. And right again, schools can be a place that either amplify those things or uh, um, diminish them, right? Be yeah. responsive to them so kids aren't depressed and anxious. Um, so they're not, you know, turning to drugs and alcohol. So mm-hmm. they're not um, killing themselves. So yeah. we can either, again, we can have a space that uh, makes those things worse or makes them better. Um, yeah. I don't know what we have right now, but um, certainly so- something has to change, right? Mm-hmm. If it changes in society, it should probably change in schools. Yeah. If it changes in schools, it should probably change in society too. Yeah. 
Yeah, I like that connection you're making. Yeah, thanks for the work that you're doing, you know, on the behalf of students, for students, on the behalf of teachers, for teachers, and for those school systems, um, you know, coming in and, and providing support. And Nick, you taught high school social studies for 10 years. Uh, what right. caused you to want to get into teaching as you reflect back? Yeah, it really was. I, I don't know to, to whom to attribute the quote, but it's that <laughs> notion of like education is not the filling of the pail. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the lighting of a fire kind of yeah. thing. And I think I remember writing that on uh, on an essay in college, you know, when I was going through the teacher's college back in back in the early 2000s. Um, and that notion has kind of stuck with me. And as I went through, you know, my professional learning after getting into the classroom, which was a journey in itself. All right. I don't want to bore anybody with the details, but I graduated in the depths of the Great Recession where no school district is hiring. You know, the, the district where I student taught I was having a hiring freeze. I had to move state states. Um, in order to get the job that I eventually oh, wow. got first year working half time um, and, you know, doing yeah. part time work as a school custodian to kind of <laughs> fill the gap and then got hired on uh, full time the year after that. So, yeah, I mean, I've I've worked a dozen different jobs. Um, including... So what, you were teaching high school in the morning and then being a custodian <laughs> in the afternoon. Oh, I could say I, I literally said this to kids. I was like, I cleaned up, I scraped gum off of every single desk <laughs> in this entire building. So if I find gross, sticky gum under this desk, I'm going to be so upset. <laughs> um, and I can speak to that authoritatively because I did have that little can of spray and scrape all the gum off. But um, yeah. And so so like as I read more, as I just got engaged more, you know, both with wanting to understand my students, understand pedagogy and yeah. schools and culture and those things like that language of like constructivism gets a bad rap. Um, but like, frankly, that's how our brains work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm <laughs> you a know, we const- yeah. We construct our understanding of the world based on right. Our sensory inputs and, yeah. you know, learning isn't just a thing that is done, uh, uh it, managing inputs and outputs. It's not a thing that's done to you, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a discourse that happens within a student's mind in an exactly. attempt to understand that. So teaching is relational. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think, right, the more that I just read and learned and, and found the language that to connect those things, the more I wanted to change my practice to really break down all of the other, you know, frankly, crap that had gotten in the way. PBIS, all these different grading schemes, you know, all these different rubrics. And, you know, one year I was just like, I'm, I'm done, right? I'm done making new seating charts. I'm done with, with all these things. And I literally said to my, to my students, I was like, what do you want to do? And we built, uh, you know, essentially like the first big open project based learning unit that I had ever done as an educator. Like I was building the plane mid flight Mm. and it was honestly the coolest thing that I had ever done in the classroom. And I was like, how could I ever go back (laughs) to, you know, unit uh, chapter quiz, uh, (laughs) chapter test, you know, final blah, 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 like going through all those motions when I had, (laughs) you know, students make reports on the history of mortuary sciences, you know, going back to the civil war and they went to the funeral home and they got a tour of the funeral home and brought all that, you know, the historical context and the modern science Mm. kind of combined there, right. All, all kinds of cool things. I had students writing, um, letters to, uh, letters to, uh, representatives and and legislators about different issues. I had students put a board presentation together about Eurocentrism in the world history textbook. Um, and you know, it's like, I was just piloting this experimental kind of model in in my own room. Mm. And I just, I completely lost interest in scope and sequence. I lost interest in trying to rank and sort it and grade it all, whether this is an 89.5 <laughs> or whether this is a 76.2. I was like, I don't care. Come in my room, listen to the kids talk about their learning, see the products they're creating, watch what's happening here and tell me learning isn't happening. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, that, that, you know, <laughs> what was that first I was, project you did? Do you remember? Uh, it, it, like I said, it literally, it literally was me asking that them that question. Like I, I was just sick and tired of my co-teacher and I every single day would have to make a new seating chart. <laughs> and it finally, I was just like, I'm so done. Like I'm done trying to manage these behaviors. We're not, we're not learning a, and we're not, you know, we're not getting along together. So how, how do we fix this? Like I literally was just like, I need to come to you guys because the things that I'm trying to do are, I've used every tool, tool in my toolkit. I don't know what's working. So, so, they say? I, so, so we just opened it up. I literally just asked, what do you want to do? 
And I, I gave them, I think, you know, we took like a poll or a survey or something like, what, what is it that you want to learn about? Like, blah, 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 blah. And I think we started with that. Um, I'm having to think back a few years now, but um, <laughs> it was like, what do you want to learn about? Um, who are you going to work with? Um, and what do you want the product to be? So like kind of thinking, okay, authentic learning has to require an audience. Um, So, you know, it doesn't have to be a presentation. It could be a website or it could be something you put up on YouTube or whatever. And um, yeah, that just became a model that I eventually kind of built into all of my all of my classrooms. And, you know, like the the theory and the 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 framework around it, once I found it was sound. But, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. I. To me, it was just a, a last gasp of, of desperation. It turns out like, oh, hey, there's a whole framework and model for understanding mm-hmm. project-based learning, yeah. um, understanding you know, how, um, how students can collaborate, construct, uh, all these kinds of ideas. Yeah, you mentioned PBIS. So I'm in public education, and that's a big buzzword. You know, everyone's trying to- Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> to PBIS. I mean, speak to that a little bit. Where's PBIS missing the mark? Oh goodness! No, so I don't. I don't mean to get you all riled up here. No, it's all good. Uh, so, so this is this is language that I that I didn't have until fairly recently. Um, but essentially, right? If you think about if you think back to your uh, developmental psychology courses in college, now, right? Like we learned yep. about B.F. Skinner, we learned about mm-hmm. Pavlov, we learned yep. about all these things that that eventually become known as as behaviorism. Mm-hmm. You know, the notion that um, Skinner puts rats in a box and the the <laughs> they press a lever and they get food. Yep. Um, you know, they if they want to train them in a separate way, you know, they can they can light the little electrical pads on the floor. You can do this with pigeons. You can do it with dogs. And guess what? You can do it with kids. So <laughs> behaviorism kind of became the dominant, you know, paradigm for understanding human motivation um, for a very long time. And um, so, so that's that notion that human behavior is primarily responsive to extrinsic motivators. Okay, so let's bring this back to PBIS. What is PBIS really based around? These token economies, the school store, right? The notion that you can get a you know, a card or a ticket and enter it into some kind of drawing, right, that we're rewarding those good behaviors, you know, and, and punishing, uh, you know, but they would call it something else. Uh, Alfie yeah. Cohn calls PBIS uh, or no, that, that was a different thing entirely. Sorry, uh, <laughs> you can cut that part. He was talking about standards based grading with that. But yeah. um, but basically here, here's the here's the off ramp to that. Right. So behaviorism lasts longer in the context of schools than it actually does, you know, in psychology. <laughs> um so back in the 1970s, then we begin to um, understand more about human motivation. This idea becomes known as self-determination theory. So self-determination theory is the understanding of essentially how intrinsic motivation works. And the main researchers at the time nailed down three factors, which I'm going to try to list here. Um, autonomy. So you have control over, you know, the conditions within, you know, again, not total control oftentimes, but you have some amount of input and control over, you know, the conditions of, of your life and your experiences. Um, autonomy, competence. So you feel good at what you're doing um, and you do those things well. So, um, you know, the, the feeling or the experience that you get of being competent at something will fuel you to want to do more of it. Yeah. And what they call relatedness and that's you know your relation to other people so that mm-hmm. it's it's one of the reasons why social learning is such a powerful classroom tool is because right you want to you know do collaborative constructive projects with uh with you know other people uh like you who think like you who have other ideas that challenge you in all those sorts of ways so like let's think about the the way that schools are built around this edifice of behaviorism to control students through rewards and punishments and the the anxiety that that creates through grades and grading through mm-hmm. you know through through um punishment models whether they're pbis or more traditional right of you know these big set of class rules and you have to have your pencil out you have to have two feet in the door or be at your desk these elaborate systems of tardies and bathroom passes all these kinds of things that you have to manage over the course of your day or an off-ramp to this new theory of intrinsic motivation and rebuild the structures of schools and classrooms around autonomy uh competence and relatedness well, how would that look different? <laughs> well, it looks it looks a hell of a lot different, right? Because uh, you have to give students a lot of choice in, um, again, the conditions that they're working under, the kind of work that they're doing, and the things that they're learning about. Again, not unlimited, but within reason, mm-hmm. right? Supporting them, 
socially, relationally, um, in becoming you know competent at those tasks. So they'll want to do more of those things. And then, of course, the 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 relatedness and the connectivity piece, where it's like you learn from the people around you, right? You learn from the company you keep, kind of idea. Yeah. So. Um, those are not compatible, really, <laughs> really, really notions. So we need to build uh, structures of school around the latter more than the former. Yeah, that's helpful. Thanks for breaking that down. I never, I never really, th- I saw the connection before to the behaviorism, but I never saw the opposite of the self-determination theory. So, so that was helpful to give a different, a different lens to view things through. As, as you look back to your your classroom teaching experience, right, those ten years, there were probably many uh, great moments. But like tonight, as we're as we're talking, as you're thinking, even now, what are a couple that sort of stick out to you as some of the most rewarding moments of being a classroom mm. teacher? It generally comes in the form of students who I had had in the past who who come back to visit or you know write letters or um, write emails or yeah. you know the ones the as, especially if it's the ones that you don't really expect um, <laughs> to kind of you know that uh, that perhaps it was either a, a rocky kind of relationship along the way, or a lot of work that went into things, and then upon reflection, kids really find that you know those were rewarding experiences. That was that relationship was a really valuable one. Like mm. you really helped me get through a, a hard time, um, and you know I think the way that I had structured my classroom and kind of. The, the, the feedback that I always got was vibes, right? Just my classroom had good vibes. You know, you can <laughs> kind of come in. It's very, it's very chill, kind of relaxed. Kids can just kind of get to work and kind of get going on things. Lots of check-ins. Um, and so kids really wanted to use, wanted to be in my space when they weren't even in class. So there were a lot of kids who would eat lunch in my room. Um, a lot of kids who would come and talk during their off hours and my off hours before and after school. And, you know, that could be a lot, <laughs> yeah. but, yeah. um, but at the same time, like those, those are the real positive memories that I have is just, you know, the students were able to confide, um, you know, in, in, in tough things and share successes and just kind of like, you know, get through their adolescent, uh, mm-hmm. life in mm-hmm. high school together, mm-hmm. um, with me uh, with, and for a lot of them, it really was, it really was tough, um, for me then to go this spring and say like, Hey, I- I'm leaving at the end of the year and I'm not coming back. Um, yeah. It, that was some of the hardest conversations I actually had to have in the classroom was like that day where I was like, I'm going to rip the bandaid off today. I, and I had to tell six class periods because <laughs> <laughs> that's how many, you know, different classes I was teaching each one, man, audible gasps. Um, and it was really hard to get through without um, without tearing up. So, you know, that's how you know that you made an impact where I still hear from kids that I had had in the past, even though, you know, I'm not even in that classroom context anymore. Now, as you made that decision to leave the classroom, you know, what caused you to do that? How, how long do you want this podcast to be? <laughs> All right. Um, I'll, I'll give the I've had a lot of time to think about it, but um, I didn't have issues with parents, with administration, with anything for the first eight years of my, of my, um, experience. And they, they were all in one, in one school, right? So what that's, when that's you were a janitor. <laughs> no, I, that, that was the best time. You know, <laughs> I had the, I had the skeleton key. I could get in everywhere. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have said that. Should I? Um, no, but, um, it all started when, so, so I would teach my nationalism unit in AP European history. And in there, I would also teach about white nationalism. Um, Not just because it's an idea that was on the rise, um, but especially after 2017, the Charlottesville Mm -hmm. rally, you know, the Unite the Right rally that was down there, the, you know, the rally at the Robert E. Lee statue Mm -hmm. um, there on the campus. Um, Mm -hmm. And of course, the violence, the the murder of the the counter-protester, right? You understand all that context. So, um, So I would... I would use that right as a really powerful um, kind of onboarding for kids into this notion. So we learn about oh, wow. nationalism in Prussia in the 1800s, in Italy, you know, all the all the usual European yeah. history stuff. And then we would look at issues in modern nationalism. So for a while there it was Brexit, you know, yes. because a lot of those issues were the same. You know, it was the rise of 
um, nationalist parties in mm -hmm. France, you know, mm -hmm. with like Marine Le Pen. There were even issues in Poland, Ukraine, Russia. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's like, oh, I wonder if any of this stuff is going to be relevant, guys. Yeah, Brexit <laughs> happened. Marine Le Pen almost became president of France. And of course, now, you know, later with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So mm -hmm. I, I feel I feel pretty confident that my AP Euro kids are well prepared to understand current events. Mm -hmm. And that's frankly what got me in trouble, because then um, in 2021, I did the same thing I had done since 2018. Okay. So 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 I've been teaching about Charlottesville, um, you know, since basically it happened. And um, apparently that had set some parents off um, in 2021. Oh, and wow. it initially started as a complaint, um, you know, about a video that I used in class. Uh, and it, again, it was the same video I had been using for, for four years or whatever. And, you know, it, it's, it, it came with all of the disclaimers I posted on my Google classroom page, like, Hey, here it is preview this here's the content warning with all mm -hmm. this stuff, right? You're hearing white nationalists, actual people who call themselves Nazis, you know, clan members, all these things talking in their own words, right? It's important that you hear this language. Um, you know, in fact, then in. I think even in 2020, the Department of Homeland Security had even said that white nationalism was the biggest domestic terror threat. And oh, even wow. just in the last, yeah. even just in the last week, um, this kind of flew under the radar. But the uh, they actually released a terrorism um, warning, uh, kind of about you know these issues with uh, uh, with with nationalist movements, particularly targeting LGBTQ um, mm -hmm. places of worship, all these other kinds of things. So anyway. But um, but yeah, this kind of rose to the to a complaint where like then these the same parent uh, and it really became a couple just a couple of parents um, were just upset with the way that I had approached my classroom generally, but waited until what like April to make these complaints known. And they said mm -hmm. I spent uh, an exorbitant am amount of time covering the U.S. campaigns and elections in 2020. In Iowa, which again I had done for every election going back to 2012, which was the first one I covered with Romney and Obama, mm -hmm. and you know uh, Trump in 2016, and now the 2020 election. Um, they were upset at how I taught about January 6th because that had happened earlier in the year, mm -hmm. and maybe you can kind of sense where their perspective is coming from. Yeah. Um, but then they thought that the video that I showed um, the class seemed to portray President Trump in a negative light. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, it, they are also one of the complaints levied against me too was that I seem to tweet about left wing topics, including my involvement with the Human Restoration Project. So, <laughs> so HRP was formally entered into a into a complaint with uh, that I had had with my administrator. But um, of course, nothing came from that because you know I'm teaching history, I'm teaching current events. But it led my administrator at the time to tell me, and I wrote an article about this that this was a direct quote that current events do not belong in history class. Oh, and wow. in the course of that meeting, I actually had to pause my principal who said those words, open up my laptop, pull up a sticky note and type that verbatim because I was like, I need to record exactly this because you're the first person I've ever heard <laughs> in my teaching career, in uh, all of my training, in my with my history degree and and anyone that I've ever collaborated with on this work who would say that. So I just hmm. need to get that down for the record because that's going to have an impact on the way that we teach history classes here at the high school. Um and essentially, since since then, my admin uh, had had it out for me. <laughs> oh, wow. um, yeah, it, there were issues every two to three to four weeks um, where I'd get an email called into a meeting. Um, uh, uh, community members were monitoring my social media account and would send him an annotated bibliography of my tweets and the things that they disliked about them. Um, they would, uh, they tried to get me fired because I signed the Zen ed pledge to, uh, teach, you know, true history. Um, yeah, there, there were a whole slew wow. of things that, uh, yeah, that not, not, Every parent, they were oblivious, but uh, yeah. a few very politically motivated parents um, attempted to do. Now, the, the thing that ended uh, that ended with me leaving was just earlier this spring, actually in the spring of 2022, where, um, you know, understanding kind of my um, 
my role in kind of this, um, I got contacted by a former Des Moines Register reporter who wanted to know, like, what's the impact of Iowa's divisive concepts law on the way that you're teaching Black History Month? So, <laughs> right, Iowa had passed this law where we couldn't, you know, it, it's all the same stuff that's everywhere. And I told him straight up. And that appeared in an Axios article. And that got me called into a meeting where I got a letter in my file and was made to take an unpaid day of leave uh, for violating the communications policy by talking to the media about what happens in schools. Yeah. Um, And a couple weeks after that was called into another meeting uh, where I was told I had too too many incompletes (laughs) from holdover from first semester in a year long class that I taught that those kids were still trying to make up that work. And so. Um, after that meeting, I went home, uh, took the rest of the day off and submitted my letter of resignation to which my principal said, thanks for letting us know. We'll wait until you tell your colleagues before posting your position. And that's after 10 years, um, in the school that I was teaching in. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a sad story for sure. What would have been helpful, you know, during that situation to, to keep you in the classroom? It very much felt like the school district and especially my administrator were were being reactive instead of proactive yeah. in approaching these things. That's what I was um, and I think their reaction and their risk averseness, um, you know, meant mm-hmm. we don't want to have difficult conversations with parents who are fired up about these politically contentious topics. Um, we're going to try to, you know, satiate that. We're going to try to just... Um, uh, try to feed it. And by feeding it, they brought more of it upon themselves. If that makes sense. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I was, by the end of it, I was just kind of tired about tired of the, the building mismanagement for my administrator who, Mm -hmm. you know, was, was clearly handling these things in, in, uh, in my view, inappropriate ways. Um, and the fact that my district did not see it that way, um, I felt very unsupported there. But there's some bigger picture things, too, going on in terms of school board leadership and, yep. and all those things. But um, essentially, it just felt like there was no one at the at the helm um, who was willing to take the same risks that I had mm-hmm. um, and really just make a full throated defense of. The things that they believed in so they weren't going to stand up and defend the teaching of history um, of difficult topics they weren't going to defend you know a teacher who had taught in that district for 10 years who had mm-hmm. been in positions of leadership in the district and so i just felt you know like that had precluded my future <laughs> with uh with the district going forward and it took me a very long time just to realize that you know, my, my worth as an educator is not tied up in that place, but it's tied up in me. So I could take myself anywhere (laughs) and do whatever I want. And without having to put up with, um, the abuses of, um, you know, malevolent management. Yeah. I think a lot of teachers can relate, maybe not to the extent of the, of your story, but the extent of not feeling supported. And in what ways do you think teachers want to feel supported in their profession? So thinking back to your story, maybe specifically with that or just teachers in general. So it's really interesting. The, uh, that Annenberg Center at Brown University yep. just had just released this rise and fall of the teaching profession. Mm-hmm. And then in there, they actually say that the current state of the teaching profession is at or near its lowest levels in 50 years. So, you know, I take solace, you know, that my my experience is not the, the only one, that it is, in fact, a systemic problem. And in a lot of ways, I think that gives us hope, right? Because it means systemic problems have systemic structural issues um, that don't have to do with a single incompetent building administrator yeah. and a single school board. But again, like a lot of these things, these are social issues. They cite in this survey the huge explosion in school shootings, for example, as one of the factors you know, contributing to um, the desire for not only for teachers to perhaps uh, uh, have low job satisfaction or seek other professions, but the the desire for young people to step into the profession is at an all time low as well. Yeah. Um, and one of the solutions that they actually propose to this is an interesting one. They say that um, 
it's an interesting one as insofar as its intersection with the work of the Human Restoration Project, too. And it is. I'm finding it there. They say, finally, coalitional approaches to teacher organizing, like bargaining for the common good and bottom-up collective action, may provide opportunities for teachers and their unions to influence politics and policymaking alongside other organizations representing working people. Mm-hmm. So, right, it's, it's not like there's an educational solution to school shootings, but teachers working in um, in coalition with one another, taking massive collective action like we saw with, uh, you know, Red for Ed back, what, in 2018, you know, huge, massive teacher successes. And, um, you know, we've seen um, kind of a militant um, labor movement in the present like we haven't seen in a generation in the United States. Um, So there are collective solutions to these things that teachers organizing with one another can um, can certainly resolve. Um, but I, and I think there's other kind of structural things that the, that this study points to that just kind of make common sense, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, providing opportunities for coaching, for the construction of authentic, useful professional learning communities and not the kinds of PLCs that I think a lot of us <laughs> experience, but, nope. um, you know, peer review programs, all those kinds of things that they say teachers need to feel successful with their students and ensure the profession maintains mm. high standards. So it's like all of that w- is within reach for us to do it. But yep. we just have to say, like, who is willing to step up and lead those efforts? Who's willing to, you know, put in the work to help organize teachers? And I worked as a teacher organizer for um, five of the years that I was also in the classroom. So that's something that I have some experience with as well. But yeah. um, it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of effort. There's not individual solutions to systemic problems, mm-hmm. right? That's how we get teacher burnout. That's how we get um, the the issues that we have today, right? The only way that we're going to fix things is with bottom-up collective <clears throat> action, collective solutions, um, political, social, economic pressure. Nick, thanks for sharing your story and also for, you know, the work that you're doing with Human Restoration Project. I think you, you, you're highlighting a lot of things in your story that the work that you're doing, you know, is, is addressing. So I, I really appreciate that. But we're getting to the end of our conversation here. So it's time for the final word. What would you like to say to close out this podcast? I just want to have a quote here from Dr. Henry Giroux. So Henry Giroux, um, was one of the keynote speakers at our conference to restore humanity. And in his keynote, he says, and I'll just quote directly from him here. He says, at stake here is the courage to take on the challenge of what kind of world we want. What kind of future do we want to build for our children? The great philosopher Ernst Bloch insisted that hope taps into our deepest experiences and that without it, reason and justice cannot prevail. In the fire next time, James Baldwin adds a call for compassion and social responsibility to this notion of hope. One that is indebted to those who follow us. He writes, generations do not cease to be born and we are responsible to them. The moment we break with one another, the sea engulfs us and the lights go out. Before we end, who do you want to give a shout out to? Yeah, so so my shout out, it was impossible to choose just one, but I would be remiss if I didn't shout out um, HRP's biggest cheerleader since the beginning. She's been on our board since the beginning. She's the first person that we go to to share our successes and struggles with. And she's truly the heart the soul, the spirit of our organization, and that is the inimitable Julia Fliss. Um, so as a as a Teach SDG ambassador, what she does with kids in her own classroom is also hugely underrated. Like mm. the fact that she is not, uh, you know, a, an edgy celebrity rock star is beyond <laughs> me. But if we could bottle up the love, the vision, the compassion that she brings to uh, the 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 classroom work of teaching every single day, I think it would literally solve like every problem inside and outside of the classroom. Um, No joke. So be sure to follow her at Julia Fliss on Twitter and get a taste for um, that infectious energy and life force and enthusiasm that she brings. Nick, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast and all of your insight. Listeners, thank you for joining us on the Diving Deep EDU podcast. If you like this episode, subscribe, rate, review, and share it out. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire.